the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week, the ESRI publishes latest forecasts for the Irish economy. So what does it tell us about inflation, house prices and the impact of the tech cuts on our corporation taxes? Conor O'Toole, co-author of the report and an associate research professor with the ESRI, and Umber Kennedy of the Irish Times will tease out these issues in a few moments. In the second half of the show, Irish Times London correspondent Mark Paul will give us his perspective on the health of the British economy. But first to the Irish economy and the ESRI's latest set of forecasts, which in the round paint a rosy picture for the year ahead. I began by asking Umber Kennedy of the Irish Times to take us through the ESRI's main findings. Okay, so the um, upside to the report is that the growth outlook for Ireland has improved significantly in the last three months. The downside is the cost of living challenge being posed to households is, is going to remain and it's going to remain a distinct uh, challenge for the medium term anyway. Uh, the Institute uh, predicts that inflation is going to average 4.5% this year. That's on the back of falling energy prices internationally. Now, that's a big change from its prediction at Christmas. It was expecting inflation to average 7.1% for 2023. So it's come down quite significantly. However, it uh, cautions that, you know, the decline in the kind of rate rate of price growth isn't going to make things immediately cheaper and therefore households will remain under the kind of financial cash for quite some time. It also warns uh, significantly that if second round effects of inflation principally wage growth were to pick up, interest rates would have to probably remain higher for longer. And that could have a very significant negative outcome for households and for the wider economy. So that's the kind of warning. The um, growth rate then, as measured by modified domestic demand, which is a kind of um, a more accurate uh, measurement of the Irish economy, is expected to grow by 3.9% this year, which is pretty positive in the circumstances. And then, ironically, we have uh, a warning also from the Institute that uh, the Irish economy could uh, run into a bit of overheating uh, even as early as this year. Now, that uh, fear of overheating always lingers in the background of the Irish economy, and it's probably to do with a lot of the infrastructural deficits that we have in housing and health. So the last time the Institute warned about overheating, it was back in 2019, and that warning then was quickly overtaken by the p- pandemic and was soon forgotten about. But we're sort of back here again, largely because the Irish economy keeps producing strong growth rates and we're at full employment of uh, 4%. So it said a few other different things. Um, it had a, f- a few um, significant things to say about housing. Um, it noted that the supply of housing, while up to 29,000 last year, will probably dip this year before returning on an upward trend in 2024. Um, it still thinks that the chronic undersupply of housing will will mean that prices will be growing for the foreseeable future. Um, another point that it made, which was quite interesting, was um, you know just about the concentration risk at the heart of the economy. Now, we've heard about these for a number of years, and it's usually always mentioned in the same breath as corporation tax because we know you know, uh, about 80% of it comes from 100 companies and about half of it comes from 10 companies. So there's a real high concentration risk at the heart of the public finances. But the Institute was um, expanded the notion of that risk into 
uh, areas like employment and trade. So it notes that a lot of the recent job gains in recent years have come from multinationals. And um, most of our trade, well, at least half of our trade in services and even more so in goods come from multinationals. So if there was a significant reversal in that area, we could be hit more than just on the tax front. We could be hit on the jobs front and we could be hit um, on the trade front. And interestingly enough, uh, in the third quarter last year, the RSI noted that there was over 10,000 job losses in the ICT sector. Now, most people will will remember that there was a spate and there has been a spate of big job announcements, layoff announcements from some of the big tech companies globally. But interestingly enough, it noted that in the following quarter, and this really wasn't picked up by anybody, there was an additional 9,000 jobs added to the sector. So it just shows that a lot of those uh, tech workers may be recycled in other companies in the Irish economy. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, Conor O'Toole, you're one of the co-authors of this report for the ESRI. A lot to digest there, uh, as outlined by Owen. I was wondering if we could just start with inflation for a minute. Why have you decided to revise downwards your uh, inflation number um, so sharply from 7.1% at Christmas, as Owen mentioned, to uh, a rate of 4.5% now, particularly as I know at wholesale level, energy prices have been falling, but for consumers... Uh, at a retail level, uh, there the really hasn't been any any difference at all. Yeah, thanks, Kieran. Really good summary, actually, Owen. I, c- I couldn't have said it better myself. I think it was uh, very nicely put across the, the, the range of points that we were making. Yeah, in terms of the inflation issue, obviously, at the start of the year, you know, when we were, or certainly in the end of last year, when we were setting the, the, the previous QEC, we were really concerned about a re-escalation of the energy price inflation. So we had bid into our underlying forecast, you know, the 7.1%, which was the, the previous forecast, you know, quite a notable increase in the retail prices for, for, for energy over and above what had happened and materialised to date. So... We, this is where we're, we're, we're taking a little bit of a, a different uh, track. We don't see those pressures necessarily being as strong uh, for this year. And in a sense, you know, given the developments in the international energy markets, you know, our expectation now is that there, there will be a notable moderation in, in the inflation rate uh, in the energy uh, element alone. And that is really giving the the reduction that we're we're putting forward for the inflation rate for this year, you know, because that moderation uh, is 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 likely to take place uh, towards the end of the year. Now, look, there's obviously um, huge uncertainty still around the 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 energy markets. You know, the 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 potential for any escalation in tensions in the Ukrainian situation that could you know further disrupt the situation. You know, but but those factors notwithstanding, um, we, we are expecting that much of the pass-through has already happened to, to households and that the uh, the energy component of the inflationary process will kind of fade away. I think Owen mentioned it there um, in his summary of the findings. You know, the real risk that we see is, is kind of a change in composition of inflation, right? So to date, we've really seen the the, the inflation rates, the, the high cost of living pressures coming through that um, external energy market uh, channel, and you know, from from one perspective, that's a, you know really difficult to deal with from a policy perspective because it's outside our control, right? These are international prices, uh, and Ireland doesn't have a a big role to play in in setting them. So we we kind of have to take those those prices uh, uh, as a given and, and work within that context. However, we are you know noting the risk now that you'll have a change in what's driving inflation 
towards some of the domestic factors, right? So end of last year, we had a big increase in uh, domestic uh, energy costs. We had a big increase in business energy costs. And it's only now that you'd necessarily see these being, in particular on the business side, passed through to consumers in higher prices or from the consumer side, you know, they're starting to feel in their pockets this, these pressures. So now they go and start demanding higher wages. So, you know, it, that's the kind of lag we see between the external factors going up and then it gets bid slowly into these second round wage effects or broader price effects. So you have this change in composition of the inflationary basket from uh, the uh, the external factors towards the domestic factors. Now, you know, the, the evidence uh, isn't necessarily clear on that at this point in time, but we feel it's a risk that's worth calling out because, uh, you know, that that's that this, these lags you know, do mean it takes time for us to, to see some of these effects. Connor, keen to get your view on the housing market here because uh, there are a couple of elements to it. We had a report from Daft out this morning um, saying that asking prices for homes in Ireland declined by 0.3% in the first three months of this year. Now, that's the first time we've seen a fall like that since um, since 2013. And separately, uh, we're seeing interest rates go up. And obviously that, that will put pressure on people who have mortgages and it's also going to uh, impact on the, the finances of people who are looking to get on the on the property ladder right now. So what's what's your view in the round of where the housing market is going to go um, this year and and prices as well? And I guess the only solution to the housing issues that we have at the moment is extra supply, but that doesn't seem to be coming on stream. Yeah, first, my take on the, the figures released uh, today, you know, not surprising, right? I think that um, e- even if you look back at the CSO data for a number of months now, you you, you can see quite a marked slowdown uh, occurring. And um, you if you think about how high the general inflation rate has been, you know, we've had house price inflation below the general inflation rate, which in a sense means that house prices are, are coming down in real terms over, over the past number of months. So uh, I'm not surprised to see the, these effects uh, coming through into, into the asking prices, which again would lead the transactions prices by, by a period of time. You know, what's driving this? Undoubtedly, the interest rate environment is, is making a difference to this. You know, one immediate way in which interest rate policy works, and this is the, the aim, the ultimate aim of the ECB, right, is that they will cool the economy by raising rates. And how does that work? Well, basically, you know, makes credit more expensive, makes it more difficult to get, uh, and therefore takes demand out of the system because uh, both how, uh, households looking to, to purchase properties, but also on the company side and looking to make investments, you know, th- these become much more expensive to do. And, uh, you know, that, that squeezes affordability. So, you know, interest rate of policy where it passes through uh, to uh, households, you know, that they're, you know, by, by higher lending rates, that is ultimately going to have a, quite an immediate effect on, on the credit demand uh, environment and, and that will pass through to house prices. So I, I think I'm, I'm not surprised to see these effects, especially uh, given that the, you know, towards the end of last year, you could see some of the interest rate changes from the ECB getting passed through to the lending rates by the main banks here. So you, you see this, this, this pass through from the policy rate to the lending rate was beginning to occur quite, quite quickly. So yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised to, to see these, these effects materializing. Yeah, Connor. I suppose the Irish economy has been unusual in that while the rest of the, the world seems to be struggling and maybe teetering on the brink of recession, we haven't been. We've been going gangbusters 
The GDP numbers are obviously skewed by the FDI activity that goes on here. But even so, um, the Irish economy has been performing very well. I'm just wondering whether, you know, this softness that's emerging now in the housing market, whether that might be a bellwether for uh, a broader softening in the Irish economy to come. Because if you go, you know, if you think back to the 2008 crash, you know, we heard subsequently that estate agents and property developers and others in the uh, real estate market were were beginning to see a softness in 2006. <laughs> they were beginning to see it through. Uh, and then, of course, the crash happens in 08. Sure. And, you know, they, they say, well, it was no surprise. So I'm just wondering whether, you know, we should be, uh, based on that experience, we should be sort of looking at these numbers and wondering whether it's a, a signal to a, a broader softening or even, you know, something worse for the Irish economy ahead. I think um, the housing market does naturally provide, you know, one of a number of leading indicators uh, for, for the economy. I think that's that's certainly the case. Um, there are, you know, many structural differences between now, the, the economic structures that we have now, and, you know, the, the composition of the growth that was occurring in the 2008 crisis. You know, the, the period from 2002 to 2006, you know, that was a credit field bubble where you had this, uh, domestic demand-led housing market, uh, property-based credit, uh, reinforced spiral happening that that really was driving forward these these uh, you know huge imbalances both in the domestic economy and the domestic financial sector, and you know that meant that when you know the the inter- international financial markets began to uh, unwind. The Irish economy was completely exposed to that, and and uh, you know we, we suffered an extraordinarily large uh, uh, crash following that crisis. The, the there is a different context now. So the growth, you know, one of the reasons for uh, the the kind of rapid growth that we're seeing now is the sectoral concentration in in some very very. Uh, large multinational areas. You know, we have pretty much half our exports coming from two sectors. That's the the computer services and and the farm and chemicals uh, alone. So that is an an absolutely huge concentration in in these two areas. If if you then, you know, strip out the other globalization effects, you know, don't want to get into too much detail, but things like merchanting and and contract manufacturing, which are other kind of multinational related globalization effects on the exports, you know, you're down to about just under 30% is other goods and services that, that you produce from, say, the food sector or the traditional things we, we think of when we're, 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 our mind goes to companies exporting things. So we have an awful lot of eggs in, in, in very few baskets when it comes to exports. And that's really what's been dri- driving the kind of gangbuster growth, as you put it there, o- over the past number of years. You know, that that creates huge risks in other ways, right? And and um, the, the the big one really is the, is the corporation tax receipts, right? They've just become so large relative to the, the overall tax take that, uh, you know, if there's an evaporation of some of those funds and um, we haven't the right infrastructure around how those funds are being used, um, then we, we are at notable risk of that. And, you know, that, that carries over to the to the the output side and the export side, etc. So, um, you know, I th- I think there is a different composition of risks. N- that's not to say that the the domestic economy doesn't, you know, 
won't face pressures or, or there may not be some headwinds to the domestic economy. But but I think the credit market uh, contribution to growth at present really, really isn't isn't one of the the, the main factors. Um, you know, if you think about the mortgage rules, you know, they have, have limited the, the number of people, you know, accessing credit over a period of time. You know, that's that's shrunk what the the credit market does. And firms are the same, you know, they're they're self-financing in a lot of cases with their investments. So very different. Yeah, mind you, the mortgage rules were loosened at the beginning of this year, weren't they? Uh, you can now borrow four times your income. But any, anyway, we'll set that aside. On the corporation tax front, should we be worried uh, about that and the retrenchment of the uh, big tech players? Because the reason they're retrenching and laying off people is because their revenues and profits are under pressure. So you would have to imagine that's going to impact our corporation uh, tax revenues. Have you have you crunched any numbers or been able to sort of figure out what it might mean for this year, yeah, let's so, say? So, so I think at, at this point in time, um, you know, we've been kind of looking at the tech sector, you know, not just now, but we've been looking at it in terms of these risks for, for quite some time because you, we've, you can see these building, right? And, um, you know, it's about 6.5% of employment, the, the, the tech sector, uh, but it's 30% of exports, 20% of output, right? It's, 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 it's a big contributor. And, um, you know, all the big players internationally are here in Ireland. And, you know, that's, that's really good for productivity. It's really good for, for the economy to have these, you know, cutting edge international companies here. But it, it's undoubted if this retrenchment in the sector, you know, given the, the potential, uh, not sure if it's a, if it was a, uh, misreading of the demand for their services, but certainly the the extent to which they maybe uh, overbuilt the capacity in the sector during the pandemic period when there was a major shift towards digital services, etc. You know, maybe we're seeing some unwinding of that. These companies don't, you know, don't have the outlook that they expected when they made all these decisions, and now they're trying to to rejig their businesses to 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 become a little bit more aligned to maybe some of the fundamentals that are driving uh, these businesses. You know, th- this. You know, because of the, the concentration risk that we have in these areas, and not only that, it's, it's not only sectoral concentration risk, it's an individual company concentration risk we have, right? You know, we've, you know, the, there's, um, you know, 100 companies contribute 80% of, of the corporation tax receipts, right? So um, you, you lose one or two of the big, uh, not necessarily lose, but, you know, if there's a shock to one or two of the big ones, you know, we, we will we will see that. Um, but I think the question is, how do we deal with that, right? Because, um, you know, in the long term, you'd say something like, well, you know, we do need to try and diversify our export mix or try and build build domestic businesses to take over. You know, I think that's a, that's a perfectly legitimate long-term uh, policy platform, but it's unlikely to be able to, you know, step in if one of these, uh, if there's a if there's a short term shock, um, from one of these. But uh, but I think that could be a long term, uh, a long term approach. But I think the to just come back directly to to what do we do with the corporation tax receipts? Well, first of all, we have to make sure that we're not linking these, you know, the excess growth in corporation tax to current spending, right? Because that will be that's what happened during the, the credit boom, right? We had all these credit based receipts. And uh, they were tied into big increases in government spending, and then suddenly they, they all evaporated, and, and the government uh, was left with a, with a major financing gap. So we want to make sure that doesn't happen again. So you have three options: save them, spend them on infrastructure bottlenecks, or or pay down debt. And I, I think we need to 
have a pretty detailed plan about what we're going to do with those across those three options because these are big, big levels of funds that are coming in. Umber Kennedy, do you think the government has a big plan across these three options as outlined there by Connor? No, I don't think it does. It, it seems quite vague. And I know people were um, maybe impressed, if that's the right word, with the, with the two billion going in last year and, and the four billion going in this year. But actually, when you think of those monies in the context of 20 billion, of which maybe 50% is windfall, they're not that big. And then the actual long-term use of the plan, it's it's not very clear um, how long you know we're going to be putting in these monies, what we're going to be putting in in future years, and what the money is going to be used for. And actually, in the in the in its report, the ERSI noted that it's unclear just how the fund will interact with the incoming fiscal rules in Europe. So, will we be able to kind of you know spend on infrastructure outside of the fiscal rules, or will we be tied down by them? So that's there's a vagueness about it, and I think a lot of agencies and including the ERSI are now calling on the government to really set down in stone what it is going to do with this money. Uh, you know, and, and I think the obvious kind of template internationally is Norway. You know, it's got very strict rules about its oil and gas revenues. And I know they're huge compared to ours, but nonetheless, it provides a template for us to look at. Yeah, Connor, what should they do with the money, in your opinion? I mean, what would be the number one priority, uh, in, in your opinion? Yeah, I think it's going to be have to have to be a combination of these, right? I think, as Owen mentioned there, you know, certainly we're very very um, happy to see the contributions to the National Reserve Fund. I think that's a good first step, right? Because it means you're 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 taking some uh, financing out of the system, and in a sense, you you can you know by by saving it, you can pause and then think about what you need to do with it. You know, as as we mentioned earlier in the conversation, one of the one of the elements we were we were talking about was the issue of overheating, right? And um, I think there's it's always, um, you know, the you know when you see some of the headwinds in the global economy and some of the, the bigger economies, uh, you know, revising downwards their outlook. You know, you ask, well, why why is Ireland again thinking about overheating? Well, we've we've such a um, such a low unemployment rate at present, and we have uh, a system. Around the the production of housing, which which is struggling to to keep up with the demand for for housing, and so we have all these these kind of bottlenecks where where we don't appear to have the capacity to be able to to use more funds. Right, these issues, particularly around the housing sector, aren't necessarily you know just financing issues. They they appear to be be structural in nature. So I, I think um, I, I think it is in the long term. I think they they can be targeted towards addressing. Uh, infrastructure bottlenecks in health, in housing, maybe helping to to finance the climate transition. All of the big challenges that we need to do to change the structure of our economy over time. But you can't do that immediately because the the economy doesn't necessarily have the capacity to absorb these funds. So you need to be able to uh, have a place to store them while you plan out how and when they're they're spent uh, in the domestic economy. Conor O'Toole and Umber Kennedy, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. When I return, Mark Paul will join me to discuss the British economy three months into his new role as our London correspondent. Back in a few moments. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients enabling them to transform and grow. 
To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, at the start of the year, Mark Paul made the switch to Britain to become our London correspondent. So what's been his experience of the cost of living crisis there? And how is the British economy shaping up after the chaos last year of the Liz Trust government? He joined me on the line from London to discuss these and other issues, including Brexit. Here we go. Mark Paul, welcome back to Inside Business. Now, uh, the last time you were uh, ploughing a furrow as a, a business correspondent in Dublin, but you've since moved about three months ago to become the London correspondent of the Irish Times. And keen to get your view on the state of the British economy over there at the minute. Uh, you left an Ireland that was uh, bustling and, and going gangbusters in many ways. Um, but obviously, in Britain, late last year, there was a, a mini budget which uh, sent the country into a spin. Just wondering how things have settled down under new Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and what you're experiencing on the ground in terms of the cost of living crisis and inflation and so forth. Well, look, I mean, things have settled down considerably under Rishi Sunak. But I suppose in terms of my own experiences, you have to factor in that in, in, in mid-January when I moved over here, I moved to a bubble within Britain. I moved to London and London moves to its own rhythm. And, you know, there are economic factors here that don't apply anywhere else in the country. There's wealth here that you won't find anywhere else in the country. So it's really a tale of two Britons. I've spent a lot of my time traveling here as well. I mean, I've been up to Scotland. I've been down to, you know, the southeast of England to Dover. I've been to Lancashire. Um, I've been to the northeast to Newcastle. And you see a very, very different economy outside of London to what you find inside of the capital. In the capital, just to give you a little bit of my, my everyday experiences, look, on a weekend evening or down the West End or, you know, on a, on a, at a busy time when you expect hospitality outlets to be busy, they are busy here. I mean, try get a restaurant anywhere in London, uh, a decent restaurant anywhere in, in, a, in a busy part of London on a weekend night, you'll have to queue. One thing that, I, that, that really struck me about coming to London is in terms of tips for hospitality staff. You know, it's automatically added now 12.5 or 15% to every bill. Um, and that doesn't seem to have deterred customers. And that's something new, I think, for London over the last five or six years, maybe. Uh, what do you think? I mean, you're, you're a regular visitor to London yourself as a, as a long-suffering fan at Chelsea. So um, you'll be aware of, uh, of, of that. But look, it hasn't deterred. And that's a signal that people are willing to continue spending in London. There's a lot of tourists around now. I mean, I mean Brexit uh, certainly hasn't deterred tourist in London and also and also outside of London. I was in Edinburgh last week and the place was wall to wall with Americans. Very, very noticeable. And a lot of Americans have come back to Britain and are coming back this year and perhaps, you know, as a result of, of what they see as stability over here. So, you know, London is a bubble. Um, Britain is, a, is, is patchy. It's a place of mixed experiences. It depends where you live. It depends where you land on the strata of society. But overall, they don't tend to get as um, I suppose, obsessed over here with small details the way we can in a smaller country like Ireland. It's just natural that everybody in Ireland you know, talks and gets obsessed about the economy if it becomes a story. There's a sense here, there really is a sense, without resorting to the cliche of just getting on with things and carrying on. Um, and that's very, very noticeable uh, throughout the economy. There are other specific factors here. I mean, look, we can go into them as and when you like. But, you know, I mean, obviously there has been over for, for several months since I got here a really, really febrile industrial relations climate. There's strikes left, right and centre. Now, a lot of that seems to be resolving itself. But that's a real difference between Ireland and Britain at the moment is, is the industrial relations atmosphere. And then, I suppose, to, to wrap it all up, the overall economic picture, it's much, much, much more stable now than it was immediately prior to when Rishi Sunak 
took control. Um, Jeremy Hunt in particular is Mr. Calm, who has calmed everything down along with Rishi Sunak. But look, they haven't solved all the problems. They've still got to borrow about £300 billion this year just to keep the lights on in Britain. And that's the second highest level of borrowing um, in history after the pandemic. Yeah, it's a phenomenal number, no question about that. The, the budget was delivered a couple of weeks ago. You described it in a piece in the Irish Times as actually quite boring. And maybe that's a good thing for budgets for finance ministers in many ways. But Jeremy Hunt, as you, as you say, Mr. Mr. Cam, uh, and he has calm, helped calm uh, financial markets. But just take us through the um, the main elements of that budget. For example, corporation tax is going to go back up, isn't it? Yeah, now that was already baked in, um, and that that was that was actually decided by Rishi Sunak when he was Chancellor, and um, back last year or the year before. And um, so, so they always knew that was coming. The hope, uh, I suppose, on on the on the the economic liberal or right wing over here was that was that Jeremy Hunt might stall that plan, but he didn't. I think you know to call a budget boring, that's probably straight up. I mean, I think another thing that I described it as was the Radiohead budget, you know, no alarms and no surprises. Um, and that was the entire point of it. Um, so some of, some, of the, some of the central themes of it were, yeah, so corporation tax in April will go from 19% to 25%. And that is just about balancing books. Britain, as a result of some of the measures in the budget, um, its economy will basically flatline this year. Um, and they had expected it to go into recession, but the Office of Budget Responsibility now predicts that it'd be effectively flat. That was met with cheers from government benches and when he delivered his budget on March the 15th. So that goes to show you how low expectations were that they will cheer a flatlining economy might return to, you know, kind of up to about two or maybe a little over 2% growth in the next couple of years. That's what they're predicting. Inflation, obviously not directly controlled in the budget, um, but it was a central feature of his budget speech. Um, inflation here was always worse than in Ireland over the last year or two and uh, is expected to fall um, below 3% or in or around 3% by the end of the year. But actually last week, there was a surprise jump again in inflation, which has really spooked people over here and it sparked another interest rate rise in Britain. Um, so that's, uh, that's another feature is that spectre of inflation is still hovering all over the British economy and you can see it in supermarkets um, and you can also hear about it in people's conversations. I mean, every conversation over here um, is peppered with talk about the price of stuff and the price of stuff going up. And that is one thing that the British are obsessing over. So you notice that. But then in terms of the budget itself, I mean, look, a lot of uh, a, a lot of the moves that Jeremy Hunt made in the budget were about continuing some of the cost of living measures as much as he could. The Brits really went big on on energy supports and price caps on energy before Christmas or at, at the beginning of winter. And those are due to be reviewed now in uh, in the next few weeks. And they're extended for a couple of months, but they're due to be reviewed soon and those might be pulled back in. But look, I think the, the the Westminster press pool basically nicknamed Jeremy Hunt "Padlock Pockets" after the budget, and um, because no real special interests or vested interests managed to get him to open up and to spend heavily, um, and as we're entering an election cycle now in Britain, or we will be very soon, and and you know there will probably be a general election next year, so it'll be interesting to see if he comes in with tax cuts, because the big thing that the budget didn't really address, no matter what way he tried to spin it, was that Britain's big problem is that it has no growth. And where will that growth, sustained and um, significant growth come from? That's the biggest economic problem that seems to be, that economists agree seem to be facing Britain. And, and it still has no answer for that. Yeah. Now, what about Brexit, Mark? Are the effects of uh, Brexit in any way evident over there? Is it impacting the economy as negatively as uh, as perhaps we, we might think? Richie Sunak, I know, has this uh, Northern Ireland Protocol deal now with the EU, uh, which which may help smooth things going forward. But is the Brexit impact still playing out over there? 
Well, if it is, they don't want to talk about it. Brexit is a four-letter word over here, whether you're uh, uh, you know, with the Conservative Party or whether you're with Labour, no one wants to talk about it. It's been pushed, swept under the carpet. Labour don't want to, to make it a conversation point again. Um, and, and the Conservatives don't want it to be blamed um, for any of the economic woes facing the country. So if it is having an impact, you know, there's, there's just no discussion of it. They'll blame it on anything but Brexit, you know, ABB. Um, but um, look, it, it clearly must be having an impact. Like, you know, I, I know that it was the weather that caused the shortages of tomatoes and peppers and all of those kind of things over the last few weeks um, or last month or so in Ireland and in other countries. But in Britain, it was worse because their supply chain is worse um, over here. So, uh, you know, their, their labour shortage, again, like, like other countries, um, Britain has suffered a pretty bad labour shortage or is suffering a pretty bad labour shortage. Um, again, it's been exacerbated by Brexit. One of the features of the budget um, was, you know, they brought in measures to try and tempt back older people into work or to try and tempt back, you know, childcare measures to try and tempt women back into the workforce to try and plug some of these gaps. Of course, the easiest way for Britain to plug its um, workforce gaps would be to have more immigration, but they just don't want to do it because um, that would turn the whole Brexit argument on its head and, you know, they'd wonder why they did it in the first place. So, yeah, it's uh, 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 Brexit is just is just one of those things that's just going to be allowed as 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 an issue as a cause float off into the ether, and you kind of wonder how long they can kind of play that game of intellectual whack a mole with it. I mean, you know, you slap it down somewhere and it'll pop up somewhere else. You pretend it's not there, and it'll suddenly reappear. Um, it just feels like they're in a little bit of a twilight zone with regard to discussion of Brexit and its impact on the economy. Um, and, and at some stage, they're going to have to face it. And then, of course, the the final big engine of of the British and the London economy in particular, uh, is the city of London. I mean, it's a powerhouse, a global powerhouse, as you know. And it was really hobbled by Brexit. Um, and it's the only part of the economy or the only economic special interest sector that's lobbying to get rules changed as a result of Brexit. Jeremy Hunt has tried to address this. He made a, he made a speech there a couple of months back um, in Edinburgh called the Edinburgh, you know, where he laid out what are known as the Edinburgh reforms. Uh, and these are rule changes they're going to bring into the city to liberalise trade there post-Brexit, things that they wouldn't have been able to do under the European Union. And they're hoping that maybe that will turbocharge a little bit of growth in the city and uh, and, and and create more capital to, to, to invest in British businesses. But look, who knows? Who knows where it's going to end up? But growth, growth, growth and the need for it. That's, uh, that's the British story right now. Mark Paul, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Conor O'Toole, Owen Burke Kennedy and Mark Paul for joining me on the show. Declan Conlon produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today, email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.